0: I don't know if anyone's heard of what I'm about to mention in just a few minutes, if you've heard of it before. It's kind of a new concept to me, relatively new, but carpool mannequins. Have y'all heard of carpool mannequins? Yeah, Yeah, people use these, the intended use is for safety. People use them so that it appears they've got somebody in the car with them, they're not riding by themselves. Unfortunately, as happens with many things, people have taken these and using them for the wrong purpose. A guy was caught using a carpool mannequin in the HOV lane in California not too long ago. A policeman noticed it, he was in front of him, veered out from in front of him and somehow got a good glimpse of the mannequin and realized that it was a legless mannequin in the seat next to him. I've got a picture if it comes up in just a few minutes, hopefully. <laughs> We're having a little bit of technical difficulties, I think. But if you, you you see this poor mannequin, is in, he's got it dressed in a hoodie, which is pretty amazing. Uh, You can see from a distance, maybe you could tell, maybe not be able to tell, but you walk up on the car and realize there's no legs to this thing, which the police officer did. And here's the thing, the minimum fine in California for this is $500. The mannequin costs $400. I'm thinking it's easier just to sit in traffic than to pay $900 to hopefully get away with something like that. Uh, you know, for safety, yeah, I get that. That's, that's reasonable. But to use it for something like this, I mean, really, just sit in traffic like everybody else. Uh, everybody has to do that. It's just wrong and a little creepy, too, to be riding next to a legless mannequin. What am I getting at here? Well, mannequins teach us about idolatry. You want to know how? Well, Rick Ezel says this. He said, idolatry is like hugging a mannequin it is it's empty there's no emotion there's no relationship there's nothing there and that is exactly what idolatry does for us it is empty you are worshiping something that is empty that has no relational capabilities and as we saw last week god wants To have a relationship with us. He is God. He is separate. He is holy, but he is also a relational God. And so as we continue this morning in our series on the Ten Commandments, God's Blueprint for a Morally Excellent Society, we realize that God not only reveals Himself as the one true God, He reveals Himself as a personal God that wants to bless you, that wants to meet your needs and will, can and will meet your needs. A mannequin can't do that. There's no back and forth. You know, think about driving down the road with this mannequin. There's not going to be any heart-to-heart conversation. There's not going to be any back and forth. I mean, you won't argue over what music to listen to, but you're not going to have any real meaningful discussion either, are you? Well, that's idolatry. You can worship an idol, but there's not going to be real de- any real depth, no back and forth, no relationship. And God says, why would you have a mannequin?" when you could have me, when you could have a relationship with me? Why would we ever give our affection to anyone or anything else that rightfully belongs and should be directed toward our creator? That's what idolatry is about. The Ten Commandments provide a blueprint for a morally excellent society. And in this, we see the reason the way this works is we divide them into two categories. And the Ten Commandments cover all of life, cover all of my personal life, but also all of my life in society, the structure for society. We can divide them into two categories that describe how we are to build our relationships. The first four deal with my relationship to God, how I relate to God. The last six deal with how I relate to other people. So there's the foundation for building relationships. The Ten Commandments were never meant to save us. They were never meant to show, to, to perform the act of salvation. They were meant to show us our need for salvation. They show us God's standard, a perfect standard that we could never meet. And they should always, as a result, be placed right beside the gospel. We should never isolate the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, from the New Testament, the story of salvation. It is one continuous story from beginning to end, and the Ten Commandments have a part in that story of salvation, showing us that we can never, ever meet God's standard on our own. We need Christ. They always point us back to Jesus, and they are just as relevant today as they were when God gave them to Moses. After we're saved, the Ten Commandments guide us on God's right road, and they guard believers against the world's wrong road. They are guardrails for life. They set limits for us. God doesn't give us the Ten Commandments to be mean, to be hateful, to uh, suppress our enjoyment. He gives them as guidelines so that we can live a life that's pleasing, that's joyful, the life that He intends for us to leave. The question for today... As we move on, the question is, can I really, really know God? Can I really know Him personally? That's what the second commandment deals with. Now, the first two commandments sound very similar, but they are different. In the first commandment, God is revealing Himself personally as the one true God. The second commandment shows me how I am to relate to Him. The first commandment deals with who or what we should worship. The second commandment deals with how we should worship. The first commandment deals with worshiping the right God. The second commandment deals with worshiping the right God the right way. It's all about relating to God appropriately as we should. And so wrapped up in the second commandment is this the, it, the fact that it is given to us to prevent us from anything getting in the, rela- in the way of the relationship that we are meant to have with our Creator. So, the reason this is important, when God is in His proper place, everything else falls into place. You remember the golf ball and the the rice illustration from last week. If we put God first and in the center of our lives, everything else falls into place. That is why this commandment is important. So let's look at it together. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. We'll read verses 4 through 6 of Exodus chapter 20 together. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything on the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not make for yourselves idols. Last week we talked about there's a negative and positive to the first commandment. You can have no other gods before me. That's the negative, but God's saying you can have me. Here, God is saying the negative is you cannot make for yourselves idols. The positive, though, is if we worship the one true God, he promises to bless us. We get blessing from our relationship with God. Blessing of a relationship with God, but blessing that comes from that. There's a negative and a positive. In order to know God and be blessed by Him, that's one of the benefits, we must avoid idolatry. And in order to do that, there's some steps we need to take, some things we need to do. First is this, we need to understand the nature of idolatry. We need to understand the nature of idolatry. What is idolatry? What is it all about? Well, let me give you a definition, all right, before we move forward. An idol is a God substitute, a God substitute. Something is a, a God, little g, an object of worship when it becomes the source of my self-worth and the ultimate consideration in my decision-making. I read that for you last week. That's the definition. It is an object of worship when I base my self-worth on it or that person, whatever it is, and that that thing or that person is what I consider most my source for deciding what to do and what not to do. My ultimate consideration in decision-making So these things can be good things, these things can be bad things. But here is our problem. When we look at the Old Testament, there were three main idols, okay? Three main idols in the Old Testament. The first was Baal. Baal was the god of sex. Sorry, there's no other way to say it than that. That's who he was. There was Mammon, who was the god of wealth, the god of money. And then there was also Melech, who was the god of violence. So when we look back in the Old Testament, these are the three primary idols that we see. Here's the problem in 21st century America. There's a temptation to look at this commandment and say, you know what, I'm not tempted to worship any of those guys. I don't have any statues in my living room. I don't bow to anything daily. I don't have idols in my life. There are no physical idols that I worship. So this commandment doesn't apply to me. Before we move forward, let me strongly encourage you, don't do that, okay? Because for us, idolatry is not a physical problem, it is a heart, a spiritual problem. It is very much a problem in our culture today, it has just manifested itself in different ways. So before we go forward, we need to understand that that this is an issue. When we were in China, when we went to get Eli in China, we were in his home city. Uh, Chongqing was his, is where he was born, and he, uh, his orphanage was there. We got him at his orphanage, and, and there were long hours during the day where we had nothing to do. There were certain places we had to be at certain times. We were there about five days, I believe, and so there was a lot of time to fill during the day where we didn't have anything to do. We had a guide that carried us from place to place and translated for us when we needed translation when we were working on paperwork and things of that nature. Well, we did a lot of sightseeing in his home city. And while we were sightseeing one day, we, he took us by this huge statue that I brought a picture of. This is the Leshan Buddha. It is the largest Buddha statue in the world, 233 feet high. We're driving by this. He shows us this, and he said that it is so large that four men can sit on its toenail and play mahjong, which is a popular Chinese game. Some of you are familiar with that. Usually, I love facts like that. I love things like that. I mean, you know, history, tidbits, things of that nature. But as he's telling me this, I could not help but be overwhelmed with sadness because of the fact that people are worshiping an idol that's created by man. That this huge statue, a pretty incredible feat, it was built during the 8th century. I mean, incredible, especially in the day and time that it was built. But all of this, I'm sitting here thinking that that you've got men who are worshiping a statue that they created instead of worshiping the God who created them both. I mean, sure, four men can play mahjong on this statue's toenail, but we worship the one true God who holds the whole world in his hands. How sad it is that men worship images instead of the creator. But again, we look at this and think, well, that's something that only happens in underdeveloped countries, third world countries. In America, we don't, we don't, we're, we're more mature. We're, we're further along than that. We don't worship images. We don't worship statues. But again, don't fall into the trap of thinking that this isn't a problem because it is a problem for us. It just takes different forms. And the reality is because it takes different forms, it's harder to recognize. Rick Warren points this out. He says, we don't have those idols today today. We just pay billions of dollars today to go to movies to watch sex, violence, and money. It's the same thing. In biblical times, in other parts of the world today, there are idols just like this. Their idols are made of stone, brick, rock, clay, wood, or metal. And listen to this he says, today we don't have metal images, we have mental images that we worship. The shrine that you find in a lot of homes today is not a small statue of Buddha. The shrine in America is a small box. So the shrine that you find in Oriental homes is Buddha, but the shrine you find in America is a small box that you plug into the wall, and it's called a TV. Every night we turn it on and we sit and we watch our idols right in front of us. We don't worship objects as much as we worship images. Images of success, images of wealth, images of status, images of sensuality. It's very difficult to raise your kids in an environment where the society is saying these are the most important things. In life, you're trying to tell them, no, there are more important values that are vital to your existence. And I agree with him that that is the issue. But I also believe that it goes deeper than just some of those surface things because those are rooted in a deep, deeper spiritual problem that we have. You know, a master craftsman is a title that's given to somebody who is, who is considered to have excelled, that has perfected whatever skill they have. You know, You can be a metal worker, Uh, A few years ago, we were at Stone Mountain watching uh, the guy blow glass. You can be a glass blower, a master craftsman. They'll usually have a journeyman, an apprentice that's working toward that status. And it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become a master craftsman in your profession, whatever trade that is. 10,000 hours of practice. It's interesting that... Describe, John Calvin describes us. He says, every one of us, it didn't take 10,000 hours. Every one of us was a master craftsman at idolatry in the womb. We were born with this tendency to worship things that we can hold on to, ideas, things that we desire instead of worshiping the one true God. We are all master craftsmen. Idols are man-made. We learn in verse 4, however, we don't make them with our hands here. I mean, the largest stat, uh, statue in, in China is is the Leshan Buddha, but the largest uh, idol in our lives in American culture is self. It is really the desire to be God, which is what, what idolatry is. It is worshiping what we think or what we've created as God instead of worshiping the true God. It is what I want instead of what he wants. It's my idea of, of who God is versus who he really is and who he's revealed himself to be. And and idols, it's a daily struggle. It's, it's hard to face these idols, and there are two reasons for that. Two reasons idols are hard to face. One thing is they're typically not bad things. Idols can be your family, can be your job, they can be friendships. I mean, they can be things that are good. Typically, sometimes they are bad things, but typically they're not bad things. It's just that we've given them a place of prominence in our lives that is inappropriate. It's a place that belongs to God. They've they've taken a place of too much importance. Our self-worth, our decision-making hinges on those things, good things. The second reason is that they're typically not superficial and simple. They're typically deep-rooted issues. I mean, family relationships, marriages, those are deep and should be deep-rooted relationships. And these things, they're good and they're hard to identify as idols, but they are still very much idols in our lives. Idols are anything that we use to fill the God-shaped void that exists in all of us. Anything that we attempt to fill that void with other than God himself becomes an idol. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us he has also set eternity in our heart. There is built within us a desire to know our creator. We weren't made just for this life. We were made for eternity. And there's only one way we can find eternity in heaven, and that is through a relationship with our creator. Genesis 1.27 says God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created him male and female. In John four we're told that, that God is spirit and he creates us in his image. He gives us a spirit and that is how we relate to him. And so if we try to ful- fulfill that need to relate to God in any other way, then we are committing the sin of idolatry. We're filling that God-shaped hole with something other than God. And sin causes us to believe this lie that we can create God in our own image instead of recognizing that we are created in His image. That we can make God, even our concept of God, what we think He should be. That we can worship Him however way we think we should be able to instead of approaching Him with reverence and awe and appreciation for who He is. It causes us to get backwards in our concept of worship, and in our concept of relationship with Him. And we fit God into this little box that we think He can only operate this way and none other. We see this a lot of times in in battles over worship styles. And what happens there is people are confusing the expression of worship with the essence of worship. The expression equals the style of worship. the, The essence of worship is God Himself. He is the focus of our worship, and I don't care what style music it is, whether it's old, whether it's new, if, it, if God is at the center, if it honors him, and if it glorifies him, and if it exalts his name, we should be thankful for it, and we should be able to worship God with it. I believe God is, is pleased by all different styles of worship. I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven and see some of the instruments that he enjoys, <laughs> some that we've never heard of. But the point is, is that we get confused and we think God can only operate this way or we can only, he's only going to do this and he's only going to do that. And it has to fit into my little concept of God. And what we're doing there is we are creating him in our image instead of understanding that we were created for him. Now, talking about idols, quick side note, this doesn't mean that religious art is evil, okay? So don't go home and throw away your paintings of Jesus if you have one. It's okay to have those things. It's when we start to worship those things that it becomes a problem. I believe that Satan would have us worship anything, no matter how good, if it takes our attention away from God. The point is, where is the focus of my worship? Idolatry is anything that we attempt to put in the place of God, and it's anything that we attempt to to do in controlling God we try to limit God you know idols are really about control who controls my life do I control my life or does something else it's like the story of the little boy who wanted a bicycle he asked his mother for a bicycle and she said why don't you pray about it he said well I think I'll write a letter to God I'll I'll write a prayer letter to God and he said dear God he started the letter he said dear God I have been perfect all year long well he knew that wasn't right so he wadded it up he threw it away he started again He said, dear God, I've been good most of the time. He knew that wasn't right either, so he wadded up the letter, he threw it away. He started a third time, he said, dear God, I really want to be good. He stopped, he realized that's not right either, I don't want to be good. He wadded it up, threw it away. So he goes into the living room, there's a little statue of Mary on their mantle in his living room. He takes the statue, he wraps it up, throws it under the bed, starts another letter. Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again... (laughs) you know, we laugh. (laughs) But how many of us try to do that in an adult way? God, if you do this for me just this one time, I'll be faithful to you. God, you deserve, I deserve this. You owe me this. I've served you faithfully for years. We try to manipulate God in adult ways every day, don't we? We think we deserve anything. We don't deserve anything. He has saved us by grace. He sustains us by his grace. We don't spend eternity in hell because of his mercy. We don't control God. We don't make demands of God. We worship him and we seek his direction and we follow his direction in obedience. But an idol is something we do to try to control him. They're also about comfort. You know, I won't bow to an image, but God don't ask me to step out of my comfort zone to serve you. I don't want to do anything that I'm not equipped to do. I don't feel comfortable with that. Idols are about comfort, putting God in my little box and making my life comfortable. That's the nature of idolatry in America. Next, we need to acknowledge the dangers of idolatry. What are the dangers of idolatry? What do they do? Well, they disappoint us. I mean, it's like that mannequin. It's empty. There's no relationship. There's nothing there. Hugging a mannequin, it's going to be disappointing. There's no warmth, no affection. Idols always disappoint us. Look at Jeremiah ten fourteen, Talking about idolaters. Everyone is stupid and ignorant. Don't you love the Bible when it's just plain? <laughs> I mean, that's really, that's idolatry. It's just ignorant. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his carved image. Why are they that way? Because you're worshiping something that you created and you're put to shame by your own creation. For his cast images are alive. lie. There is no breath in, in them. You know, you think about man-made images, and you think about the Israelites, Aaron making the golden calf for the Israelites, okay? I mean, th- that's the issue. I think, really, honestly, this may surprise you, I think their intentions were good. I think that they, by using the calf, they were trying to pick something that, that represented strength to, to, to represent God. They wanted a physical idol that they could bow down to, something they could see and touch. They're imitating the Egyptians, which... Uh, was wrong in and of itself, but I think their intentions were good, but the problem with any physical representation, no matter what it represents in your culture, it is always going to fall short of accurately depicting the glory of God. It, that, that calf can never depict the character, the essence, the, the justice, the glory the magnificence of god and that was the problem is that no matter how good no matter how pure the metal was no matter how good the animal was and what it represented it's always going to fall short of actually what god's glory is idols always disappoint they never they never fulfill what they promise and, and you're left with that empty feeling. Again, it's the mannequin scenario. You're left with this empty, empty the feeling. Empty feeling. They never deliver. You think about on TV, you're told if you, if you drink this beer, you'll have... Everything you need, everything will be just right. You'll be the coolest person at the party. If you wear this label, you'll be at the top of the list. If you use this toothpaste, you'll be irresistible to the opposite sex, right? I mean, all all of advertising kind of caters to this idea. But if you ever ordered something on the internet and got it home and realized, man, this is not near what I thought it was going to be. Has that ever happened to you? eBay will get you every time, let me tell you. But, but that's, that's, lie. that's idolatry. That's what idolatry does. It promises all of these things that it'll fulfill all of these needs, but it's always disappointing. It's never quite what you think it will be because nothing compares to the real thing. Idols will always leave your life empty because they are empty, plain and simple. Idols are a worthless waste that will never deliver on the dream that they promise. A waste of time. They will never give you, hear me, they will never give you the joy that only Jesus can give you. Only Christ can provide that joy. They also tend to dominate our lives. Look at First Corinthians 12 too. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be led off to the idols that could not speak. They consume our lives. They control our lives. And then we lose perspective on our lives, on what's important Other people, other things, other desires control us. And we are drawn away from our Creator. They also distort our view of the importance of things. Look at Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Well, what are those things? They are temporary. They are empty. They are worthless in the grand scheme of eternity. The perspective of eternity. It's like the rich young ruler, the only person that Jesus said, you've got to give up everything. Why did he do that? Because he knew that he was holding things tightly, that his self-worth, that his security, that his whole world was wrapped up into those things. So the question for us is what controls me? What is it that directs me? What is my ultimate consideration and decision making? What is it that defines my self-worth that shows me what my object of worship is? Objects control us, and ultimately, if they're not done away with, they will destroy us. They distract us, they dominate us, they disappoint us, and they will destroy you if you don't look out. God says, for your own good, get rid of all of those other objects of worship. Get rid of all of those idols, those empty, worthless imitations of me, and replace them with me. You, can, you can't have those idols, but you can have me and you can have my blessing. Because those things, and ultimately, before, if you leave this world without taking care of this, those things will destroy you for all of eternity. And not only will they destroy you, they will destroy your whole family. Look again at verse 5 of Exodus 20. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. You end up with. A distorted image of God, but then you also end up with a distorted image of what He wants for you. And left unchecked, that will ultimately destroy you. But here's the sad part idols can destroy you, but they don't stop there. They can destroy your children and your children's children because there's nothing worse to pass down to your children than a distorted view, a distorted concept of God. The reality is, there is no greater treasure than God in His glory. But when we replace God with an idol, we are robbing our children, our families, of the greatest treasure there ever was. There's no greater treasure than the one true God and knowing Him personally. But when we don't pass that down to our kids, we are risking destruction for them and for their families. Generation after generation after generation. It's serious and it's a dangerous thing to pass on to our kids a wrong concept of God. Jonah 2.8 says, Those who cling to worthless idols forsake their faithful love. God should be our first and ultimate center, true love, center of our lives. He deserves it. Idols will destroy you and your family. So here's what we need to do. Number three, we need to avoid the sin of idolatry altogether. We just need to avoid it in any form that it takes in our culture or any other. What does God say about idols? He says, plain and simple, don't idolize anything. Put God first. He says, put me first. Nothing else. That's my place. Nothing else belongs there. And idols will pre- prevent us from knowing the one true God. You know, when I lived in Pinson, outside Birmingham, my yard, we, we bought a, a home that had been foreclosed on and the yard had been unkept for a good while. And I had more weeds than grass and I never was able to get control of it. I'm not the greatest you know, lawn person in the world anyway, but we had da- the worst thing, was we had dandelions everywhere. If you've ever had dandelions, those things are impossible to get, get rid of because they spread. I mean, you blow them, they spread everywhere. And if there's even just a little hint of a root, it's gonna grow back and it's gonna multiply. You just, I gave up after, you know, I didn't even really try that hard, but I gave up pretty quickly. I just knew it was hopeless. That's the way idols are in our lives. If we wanna get rid of them, we've gotta get rid of them. It's not just a surface issue. It's not just a matter of cutting the grass, you know, cutting it off at the top. We gotta get rid of the root. We've gotta cut it off at the root. And here's where we learn the important principle that the only way to dig up and to kill deep idols in your hearts, in my heart, in your heart, is to crush our pride and to cultivate humility. It requires humility. Humbling myself before God. Not my picture, whatever I think he should be, but who he really is in his majesty and his glory. And we have to replace the worship of that idol with the worship of the one true God who alone deserves our worship. Worship only Him. God is the solitary God. Remember Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one, the one true God. There was a teacher who recently asked her, her third grade students to write letters to God. And it just, it's amazing. I think, I know we're born with this concept of a belief in God, that God is real and that he's who we go to for answers. And, and I'll read some of these for you. Hopefully they'll amuse you. You can see them on the screen. One, one little guy said, dear God, or, or gal said, dear God, on Halloween, I'm going to wear a devil costume. Is that okay with you? Probably not, but you know, at least she asked. This is, this is a great one. How did you know you were God? I mean, Even he believes, this child believes, but how did you know, God? The next one, dear God, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? I mean, it's a pretty good question, right? Another one, Norma said, did you mean to make the giraffe or was that an accident? God would know, right? I mean, he created it. Dear God, who draws the lines around the countries? I like that one. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? (laughs) The honesty, man, if we were this honest with God. Dear God, what does it mean that you are a jealous God? I thought you had everything. That's a good question, right? You ever been in a Sunday school, children's Sunday school class and they ask you a question like that? My kids ask me those questions all the time. I like this one. Dear God, is Reverend Coe a friend of yours or do you just know him through business? (laughs) Here's a good one. Dear God, do you know about things before they're invented? That's a good question. Did you really mean do unto others? I love this. Did you really mean do unto others as they do to you? Because if so, I'm going to fix my brother. (laughs) Dear God, when you made the first man, did he work as good as he does now? Man 2.0, I guess. Our technologically advanced society. Dear God, my grandpa says you were around when he was a little boy. How, how far back do you go? <laughs> Dear God, I know all about where babies come from, I think, from inside mommies and daddy, and daddies put them there. Where were they before that? This is a pretty deep question. Do you have them in heaven? How do they get down here? Do you have to take care of them first? Please answer all of my questions. <laughs> Man, that's pretty... Blunt and pretty honest, right? I like this one too. Dear God, I'm an American. What are you? (laughs) This is great. Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) I'm pretty sure my kids do that too. I'm almost certain Timmy prayed for that when Annie was born, but I don't know for sure. How come you didn't invent any any new animals lately? We still have just all the old ones. (laughs) That's a good question. Here, Dear God, why is Sunday school on Sunday? I thought it was supposed to be a day of rest. (laughs) Dear God, my brother is a rat. (laughs) You should give him a tail. Ha ha. Some of these aren't up there. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with me and my brother Larry. (laughs) This is a good one. Dear God, I bet it's hard for you to love all, everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in my family, and I can never do it. <laughs> this one related to the other one. Dear God, my brother told me about being born, and that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Dear God, all of the people you work for, I like Peter and John the best. He liked them pretty well too, as a matter of fact. If you watch in church, dear God, if you watch in church on Sunday morning, I will show you my new shoes. (laughs) This is good. We read that Thomas Edison made the light, but in Sunday school, they said you did it. So I bet he stole your idea. (laughs) There we go. Dear God, it's great the way that you always get the stars in the right places. Yeah, that's pretty good. Here, we'll finish this. Dear God, I do not think anybody could be a better God. Well, I just want you to know I'm not saying that just because you're God. (laughs) Even third graders know where to go with their questions. Even they recognize the one true God. The question is, do we? Only he has the answers for life. Only he knows what's right and what's wrong. Only he knows the direction that my life should take. Not anything else. Put in his place. And only he deserves our worship. And here's the definition of worship. Worship means to ascribe the ultimate value and priority to something by giving it the full attention of our mind and the full affection of our heart. The full attention of my mind and the complete affection of my heart. Nothing else. That affection belongs to God and God alone. Jesus never kept him from worshiping, kept anyone from worshiping him on earth, but when he was tempted by the devil to worship him, which is what idolatry really is at its core, worship of the devil, uh, anything that's put in the place of of God, uh, this is Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 4. He said, Go away, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only God deserves our worship. Only he should receive the glory. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 11. Not to us, Yahweh, not to us, but to your name. Give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. The idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, they cannot make sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Israel trusts in the Lord; he is their help and shield. House of Aaron trusts in the Lord; he is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord; he is their help and shield. Nothing else. The Lord remembers us and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. God only, only he deserves our worship. But the beauty is if we worship him, he will bless us. That's the promise. I will bless you. And if we do worship the one true God, remove all the idols, get rid of all of that, then we get to enjoy the benefit of true worship. We can enjoy the benefit Of true worship. Look again at verse 6 of Exodus 20. Showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. I will show you my faithful love. I will bless you with my presence and my perfect love. Never ending. Steadfast. Psalm 37 4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Delight means literally to seek my happiness. My contentment. And God, if I seek my happiness in the Lord, he will bless me. He will bless my family. He will give me freedom from others, freedom from what others think, freedom from sin, freedom to live in his presence and freedom to fulfill his purpose for my life. And the promise here is to those who love God, verse 6. And in order to to love God, I've got to know God. So two questions follow. Number one, how do I know God? Well, John 14, verses 6 and 7, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If no one can come to the Father except through me, if you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So the answer, how do I know God, is know Jesus. Well, how do I know that I know God? How can I be secure in that? Well, 1 John 2, 4, the one who says I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commandments, the truth is not in him. Titus 1.16, the first part of that verse says, they profess to know God, but they deny him in their works. So they really don't know him is what it's saying. And then look, again, look at the last part of Exodus 26. Those who love me and what? Keep my commandments. You know God by knowing Jesus. You know that you know him by obeying him. The proof that you have a relationship with God is obedience. Fulfillment of the second commandment occurs when I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, everything that I have, everything that I am, and then I obey him, I do what he tells me to do in my life. My life shows that I have a relationship with him, and there is no substitute. How many of you enjoy food substitutes? I mean, I don't think anybody raised their hand. <laughs> food substitutes are never as good as the real thing, right? I, bought a, I brought a couple of things here to see if you can tell the difference, okay? One of these is real butter. One of them is not real butter. We're going to see who knows which is which, all right? How many of you think that this is the real butter? How many of you? Nobody? How many of you think this is the real butter? A few of you. Well, y'all are all wrong. That's the real butter. It's hard to tell, isn't it? Right? I mean, if you're just looking at it, you can't tell. Okay, now, one of these is real salt. One of them is no salt, which I do not recommend trying unless you have to. I tried it. It is awful. But one of them is the real deal. One of them's not. How many of you think this is real salt? Anybody? Nobody's going after the first thing here. How many of you think this is the real salt? Brave soul. Appreciate it, man. Well, you're wrong though. This, this, (laughs) that's why nobody wanted to answer, right? Looking at these, it's hard to tell, right? You can't tell just by looking. I guarantee you, if you have something cooked with real butter versus margarine, you can tell the difference, can't you? It's not good for you, but it sure does taste good. I know for a fact, if I salted something you ate with this no salt, you would know that it was not salt. There's a reason they call it no salt. It looks the same, but it doesn't taste the same. That's the way food substitutes are, Splenda, you know, whatever it is. I I think you eventually kill your taste buds and get used to it, but it's still, it's not the same. Food substitutes never really match up. And I found an article, Huffington Post, that talks about the 10 worst food substitutes we wish were illegal. Just a few of them. Fake maple syrup. Never had it, don't want to. Turkey bacon. Now, listen, I actually like turkey bacon, but it is not real bacon. Only real bacon is bacon, all right? turkey bacon. Here's a good one. Tofu sausage in biscuits and gravy. (laughs) That should be against the law right there. (laughs) The number one worst food substitute, according to this article, survey, whatever they did, I brought a picture, seafood sausage. I can't even imagine what that tastes like. Seafood sausage. Food substitutes. What's worse? Than a food substitute, well, a God substitute, an idol. An idol will never satisfy the hunger of your soul. It will destroy you, it will destroy your family, it will destroy the church. Because here's something that's true in life and something that's true in worship. Nothing tastes as good as the real thing. And that's why when you look in Psalm chapter 34... Verse 8, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Not a substitute, but God. Nothing's as good as the real thing. Nothing will ever compare. Idolatry, confess it to God, get it out of your life, and put God in the place that he rightfully deserves. At the center, at the first, at the beginning of it all, and in the center of it all. Worship Him and Him alone and experience the joy of knowing Him and the blessing of His provisions in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the privilege of being able to have a relationship with You. We don't deserve it, but yet You give us the opportunity to know You. You make it possible for us to approach You through Your Son, Jesus. It is only by your grace that we are able to experience the relationship that we have with you, the blessings that you've promised. Lord, just speak to our hearts, and if there are other decisions that need to be made, I pray that we would make them now. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?